0: This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community.
1: There's a name for that horrible sound that you're hearing beneath my voice, and I have Bob Allison, WB1GCM, the ARRL Assistant Laboratory Manager, to explain what that horrible sound is, and those are key clicks.
0: That's right. Uh, Key clicks are when the uh, keying waveform of a CW transmitter starts to abruptly or ends to abruptly, or both. In other words... If you were to look at the keying waveform of a CW signal using an oscilloscope, you can look at the rise and fall time. And if the rise and fall time is too quick of that CW waveform, uh, key clicks can occur.
1: What exactly, from a signal standpoint, is a key click? Is it a an extremely fast burst of energy or what?
0: You could say that, but it's an abrupt change of uh, on to off, And what that does, it makes a clicking or popping sound, especially as you tune away from the desired frequency. So if you happen to be a neighbor on an adjacent frequency to someone who has key clicks, you're going to hear this popping sound in the background as they send.
1: Is this why in the QST transceiver product reviews, you show the CW waveform and you're measuring that?
0: That's correct. You can see that graph uh, in QST product reviews, and you can uh, assess the modulating or the CW waveform. And if it's abrupt, if it looks like a a square block, in other words, if there's 90 degree angles of start to where it's on, and then then it's going to shut off, there'll be a 90 degree angle and it'll drop straight down. The rise and fall time is nearly zero on some. Very, very primitive CW transmitters. Those little homebrew little gadgets that you try to buy for a few bucks don't have any waveform shaping. And when there's no waveform shaping and it abruptly starts and stops, that's when you run into trouble and then you generate key clicks. How common are key clicks? Key clicks with modern transceivers today are very seldomly seen. However, if you have a vintage radio or if you're a homebrewer, or if you buy a kit and the kit looks amazingly simple, that kit may suffer from key clicks. One nice thing about QST product review is, uh, as I measure different transmitters and I look at that keying waveform, if I see a uh, zero rise and fall time of, of that keying waveform, I'll let the manufacturers know that there's an issue there and that waveform needs shaping. It needs to have at least two milliseconds of rise time, and at least two milliseconds of fall time. Anything shorter than that widens out the transmitted bandwidth. If you look at the QST product reviews, you'll see the chart that shows the keying waveform. And if it uh, has no rise or fall time, that's a bad thing. It's got to have some sort of shaping. If there's any 90 degree angles to that rise and fall time and, and the startup and the stop time. That will generate key clicks and also an associated wide king sidebands. We provide a chart in QST product reviews about that as well. So if you analyze the shape of the waveform and you see it start and stop abruptly, chances are it's a very wide king sideband. Now in QST, uh, as we do these tests, if we, C, no riser or fall. time will contact the manufacturer and say, can you put some shaping in that CWA form because your transmitter will cause key clicks. And may I please quote Steve? Of course. FCC rule 97.307B. Quote away. And it says, emissions outside the necessary bandwidth must not cause splatter or key click interference to operations on adjacent frequencies. So be careful. Uh, It's FCC rule that your transmitter must be free from key clicks.
1: This is not just a matter of annoying people. This is the law, basically.
0: FCC rule, yes. And you want to always try to be considerate to other people on adjacent frequencies. Same goes when you're operating voice modes. And if you exceed your ALC while transmitting signal sideband, for instance, you may cause splatter. That's because you're outside of the limiting abilities of your transceiver, your transmitter. And you have to keep that meter, that gauge that your transceiver has, you have to keep that within the ALC limits while you're talking. And if you exceed the limits, you can cause splatter. And that is against FCC rule 97.307B.
1: And you mentioned encountering this in products that we review and going back to the manufacturer. From a design standpoint, how would you shape the keying envelope?
0: It's not always uh, an easy question to answer, but there's usually a couple of components in there that might be a capacitor, inductor, something that can control the voltage uh, as it starts and stops. Not too abruptly on off zero to one, or 0 to 5 volts, or whatever it is, but it has to kind of start up just a little bit there, like if you put a capacitor across battery and resistor and RC time constant for the simplest example. But that has to be uh, put in there and designed that way.
1: Well, that does make sense. Now, we recorded some examples Mm. for the listeners, and we're going to start with just what normal CW sounds like. Not that they don't necessarily know that, but let's start at that base. Okay, and now you're going to introduce some
0: clicks. And for this, we have a special little transmitter that we uh, made up in the laboratory. Ed Hare, our laboratory manager, made this years ago to demonstrate a transmitter with zero rise and fall time and therefore generated key clicks. So here's an example of that.
1: Now, normally, as I understand it, if you tuned across a CW signal and you were just listening strictly to that CW signal, you may not be aware that it has a problem. And so it's a matter of tuning
0: off the frequency, correct? And then you hear it? That's correct. Uh, 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 Normally, uh, a station with uh, key clicks, as you're listening to it, sounds like just about any other CW signal. But as you tune the knob slowly and you tune away from the frequency we're going higher and higher and higher now we're up to almost ten kilohertz away you'll still you'll hear a clicking sound and that clicking uh, if it's strong enough can go across the entire amateur band and and that's a that's a very bad thing
1: and we have an example of that as well. Now, Bob, what happens if you take a transmitter that is clicky, if I can call it that, and then you end up amplifying the output of that transmitter? I mean, feeding it to a 1KW amplifier. I would imagine the clicks are still there and pretty horrendous. Yes,
0: you've just made them louder. And uh, depending upon the design of the amplifier itself, too, let's say if it's solid state, it may not like the fact that there's no rise and fall time. And there can't be any kind of overshoot or spikes associated with the keying waveform as well. That could drive an amplifier crazy. So, again, uh, the amplifier will just make the clicks louder and more obnoxious, and you're causing a larger problem. So, it'd be a good idea if you're a, an experimenter, a homebrewer, or you have that old vintage transmitter. Check it out by putting the transmitter on a dummy load and then listening with a receiver with enough attenuation. Listen to about an S9 signal level on your test transmitter there and then tune away from it. You shouldn't hear any key clicks. You should repeat that experiment as well with a signal that is 10 or 20 or even louder and then tune away. And even the, the loudest signal should not contain any kind of key clicks. So just keep that in mind. Again. Please remember that modern transceivers today are free of key clicks. That doesn't mean that there maybe isn't a menu selection that adjusts the rise and fall time. There are a few models out there. You can go into the menu, and you can select rise and fall time. Now, it's the ARRL laboratories' suggestion and advice to give to listeners here to make sure that you don't select anything less than two milliseconds of rise and fall time. Anything shorter than that will widen out the CW sidebands of that signal, and you end up taking more room up on the dial. And if you're in a CW contest and you want to have that hard-keying sound with a one millisecond rise time, for example, it'll kind of crowd out other people. If you really want to be obnoxious, I suppose you could do that, but it is not good engineering practice, and I ask you, please, to be considerate of your CW neighbors. And rise time between 2 and 4 seconds is very, very reasonable. Very good. Thank you, Bob. You're welcome. Valley Southwest
1: 1780-11000, alpha, request for three. Say what? If you hear something like that on your local FM repeater, Something is seriously wrong with the system. On the other hand, if you hear something like that on your handheld transceiver, your mobile or whatever, it could be entirely normal because your radio is capable of receiving aeronautical frequencies, those being between roughly 118 and 137 megahertz, and AM, by the way, not FM, but AM. You'd be surprised how many transceivers have that capability, And many hams don't exploit it. They don't listen down there to see what they can hear. And what they can hear is pretty interesting. Most of the chatter that you'll hear is taking place between pilots and air traffic controllers, either right there at the airports, at the towers, or the big regional air traffic controllers. In most cases, unless you live, for example, really close to an airport, you won't hear the controller's side of the conversation. You'll only hear the transmission from the pilot, which, of course, makes sense. I mean, he's got an antenna, what, 37,000 feet up in the air? It's pretty good coverage way up there, and it's easy for you to hear these people, in some cases, 100 miles or more distant. Now, these transmissions are usually pretty short, on the order of, say, 10 to 15 seconds. My preference is to listen during times of challenging weather. Now, by that, I mean rain, snow, high winds, or what have you. That's when you usually hear the most interesting exchanges about let's say, conditions on the runway, difficulties on approach, that sort of thing. Not only are these transmissions short, they're filled with jargon that you may not understand right away, although my experience has been it tends to fall into place after a while. For example, you might hear somebody say, Bradley approach American 622 out of 11,000 for nine, and we have tango. Well, what does that mean? Okay, (laughs) It's American Airlines Flight 622. He's descending out of 11,000 feet for 9,000 feet. And the reference to Tango, well, that's the what's called the ATIS system. It is an automated system that broadcasts airport conditions on a separate frequency. And each time conditions change, they post an altered broadcast. And each one is tagged with an alphabetical letter, A through Z. So... When he says, I have tango, that means that he has received report T, T for tango, simple as that. Now, if you're not sure what the frequencies are for the airports in your area or the air traffic control regions, you can go to a website such as Radio Reference, and that's at www.radioreference.com, and you can look up the frequencies there. Now, if you're blessed with owning a transceiver that can scan between two frequencies and automatically log everything it picks up into memory, that's a really handy way to accumulate a bunch of frequencies in your radio. But you can set it up and it will just scan from 118 to 137 megahertz. And whatever pops in there, it'll put into a memory channel for you. And you can monitor those channels, add, delete whatever you feel is necessary. Now I'm going to give you a tip. Uh, just something I enjoy doing. There are two frequencies in particular that you might want to program into your transceiver. Okay, one is one twenty-two point seven five, and the other is one twenty-three point four five megahertz. Both of these frequencies are pretty quiet. In fact, I dare say you won't hear anything on these frequencies most of the time, but. These are what are called air-to-air frequencies. These are frequencies that pilots use to talk to each other. And sometimes the conversations that take place here can be pretty interesting. They're usually very informal, uh, just chit-chat. Sounds a lot like amateur radio, in fact. So by all means, if you have a transceiver that can receive AM down on 118 to 137 megahertz, Set it up and listen. I think you may be surprised at what you hear. In the Eclectic Technology column in the May issue of QST Magazine, Dr. Scott Wright, K0MD, talks about the future of artificial intelligence and contesting. Scott is a little more than invested in the topic than the average person, since uh, he's the editor of the National Contest Journal. Hello, Scott.
2: Hello, Steve. What a pleasure to join you and your uh, audience today.
1: Now, Scott. For those who perhaps don't read QST, because we have a lot of people in the audience that don't, uh, can you explain what your column was about?
2: I'd be glad to. The column is about how one can take basic processing of information and manipulate it in a way that helps you as an operator understand whether you have a high probability of making a contact or a less than high probability and whether that particular contact will maximize what you hope to achieve by entering in a given contest. It's really an extension of what I've been seeing in contesting software for the last decade. The group, under the leadership of Tom Wagner, N1MM, have made N1MM uh, very user-friendly with regard to understanding which stations offer you extra points, or offer you points versus no points at all, and reflect multipliers that you haven't worked or would like to work. And I see the uh, the idea of using artificial intelligence as an extension to what Tom and his team have already done with N1MM. And here, here it is in a nutshell, if that's okay if I describe it briefly, Steve. Certainly. It, it's basically taking the signal, assuming that you are using a receiver now that is a software-defined receiver. And there are so many on the market from the uh you know long standing top quality flex radios to the new entries with Icom Kenwood Yesu, as well as the SDR receivers that now uh, are SDR. So SDR receivers can sample the signal. They can tell you the relative strength of that signal to any other signal on the band of interest or on the frequencies of interest that you're working. They can also give you a sense for the degree of noise in that signal, maybe as a surrogate for pile up, what I call pile-up intensity. One could imagine that if, by some stroke of a miracle, North Korea were to put ham radio back on the air sometime in 2020, uh, maybe, let's say, for the ARRL DX sideband contest or the CQ Worldwide contest, those stations would be in tremendous demand, and the pileups would be loud and wide and unruly because everyone wants contact with North Korea for DXCC credit. On the other hand, if... Uh, uh, if a, a station from Thailand or uh, South Korea uh, in the same, essentially, zone as North Korea were on the air, the pile-up intensity would be much less. So the software would analyze the signals that you're trying to work uh, as multiplier stations and as new contacts and would direct you uh, to a list like N1MM already has. You can sort the list by... By frequency, by direction heading, if you don't want to turn your antenna, if you want to leave it at 45 degrees, you can work all the stations uh, 45 degrees from your home, and then you can turn it to 120 and work those southeast and turn it to a 300 and work those in Asia who are northwest. You can work it by direction, but this concept would say that to maximize whatever your goal is in the contest, whether the goal is to score the most points or to achieve 5 band DXCC or to achieve a niche DXCC like 160 or 80 or simply 40 through 160 because you already have – 100 countries worked on 10 through 20, you could set the parameters and then the software would look at the signals. It would direct you to the one that's loudest at your station with the least unruly pile-up simply by looking at the noise and chatter around the pile-up. So this is simply one, one concept that I think artificial intelligence could bring to contesting. It's nothing more than, for example, having uh, an experienced contesting mentor like uh, Doug Grant or uh, Ward Silver Uh, mentoring you, whispering into your ear, let's go to 40 meters now. The band should be open to Europe. Uh, But this, this software would be able to analyze that. In addition if you're trying to decide, when should I QSY from 20 to 40 in the afternoons of the, the X contest, you have to kind of know when to do it. And Frank Donovan has taught a lot about this at Contest University. During the the, the week times, the, the low sunspot cycle times with propagation, 40 opens much earlier to Europe than it does when the solar flux index is much higher. So you kind of have to know that pattern. When in the 11-year cycle do you go to 40 at 3 in the afternoon versus 6 in the evening? Well... Artificial intelligence could actually monitor 40 for you using an SDR and look at whether the relative intensities of the signals are declining or increasing, and it could alert you with simply a text alert or a box alert on the software that says, signals on 40 are diminishing, best QSY now if you want to work 40-meter stations. So These are some enhancements that I can see uh, artificial intelligence using in combination with SDR-based receiver technology and current currently existing software. In fact, Steve, I suspect that we have some top-tier contesters probably already doing this. They're just not talking about it because they haven't perfected it yet. But uh, I can see this happening. I'm confident that agencies working for governments are already doing this, and I'm very confident in the private sector because in my line of work, we're using artificial intelligence to do all kinds of really neat things that these applications are simple to do.
1: And you make the point, Scott, in your article, that the artificial intelligence you're talking about is not making the contacts. It's mentoring, as you say. It's helping you, but you're still doing the work. The operator is still doing the work.
2: You're exactly right. It's not making any contacts. It's simply alerting you to the optimal time of when to work a particular signal on a particular band or alerting you to the presence of a highly sought-after contact on a band that you currently may not be on. If you turn N1MM, and I'm using N1MM, there are other really good contesting software programs, but I use N1MM because I've learned to use it. It's price is free, so I like that, like most hams, and I just really like it. Well, N1MM will let you search by multipliers for all the bands during the contest if you want, you know, 160, 80, 40, 20, 15, 10. So currently N1MM is taking spots that come in from spotting clusters and already feeding this in. All I'm saying is now with artificial intelligence, you can enhance, you you can use your own antennas and you create your own spotting cluster, couple it with a logging software, and then you can optimize your performance at your station. You still have to contact them. You still have to work them. You have to make the decision to go there. There's nothing automatic about it. It's just giving you information that helps you to be more situationally aware and more savvy in terms of when you try to pounce on working a station.
1: It reminds me of a comment from a friend of mine. He's an active pilot for a major U.S. airline, and he said that he always bristles when people say to him, oh, the computer flies the aircraft these days. And he says, no, it doesn't. We fly the aircraft through the computer, through the technology, but we, the crew, are still very much in control of that airplane.
2: What a great analogy. I think that would fit exactly with this. And, Steve, my my two suggestions in the column in Make-U-S-T are simply two ideas. I'm sure others in the contesting community can think of a half a dozen more ideas. Uh, We're in the process of using natural language processing software to read print documents and analyze and synthesize those in in the work I'm doing currently. I can easily see the day occurring when someone could take a concept like Siri or Alexa, and that software could then understand sideband calls and pre-populate your spotting yeah, your band maps, your spotting maps, with the call signs of stations. You know, currently we get that now with FT8, CW, and RIDI because it's much easier to decode a digital signal. It's been tougher with voice, but now with voice interpretation software, which is simply artificial intelligence, that's, I think, just around the corner as well.
1: Thank you very much, Scott. We'll definitely keep an eye on it.
2: My pleasure, Steve, and I look forward to seeing this implemented.
0: Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech. Produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.